Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all here this morning. And as always, it's an honor to open and exposit God's Word with you. Last week, Pastor Brandon finished up with the fourth pillar of our church. We have four pillars here at Grace Bible Church, which are the four E's. Exalting God, expositing His Word, equipping the saints, and evangelizing the lost. For the last four weeks, we've gone through each one so we can better understand the purpose of the church and what God expects from it. And when we looked at the third pillar a couple of weeks ago, we found that how God equips His saints is through His church, His Word and His Spirit. We looked at Ephesians chapter 4 and we found that that God had founded the church on the foundation of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit and His Word. Those three. That our Lord Jesus had appointed some apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And that the apostles and the prophets were temporary offices that were used by the Lord to begin the church. And once the New Testament was completed, the foundation was laid for the church. And these apostles and prophets They were replaced then by the evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The title of today's message is God's Word to God's Men. So we're going to zero in today on the church and look at what does God expect in His church. And what we'll see today as we answer that question is organized leadership. If we were to ask someone who is in charge of Grace Bible Church, most of us might answer, well, Pastor Brandon. But really, all pastors work for one man. And that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The local church does not belong to the pastor or to the elders or to the congregation. It belongs to Jesus Christ, who alone is the head. He bought and paid for it with His own blood. And Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians 1.20-23, through 23, Paul wrote this. Ephesians 1, starting at verse 20 which He worked in Christ by raising Him from the dead and seating Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, He has put all things in subjection under His feet. He gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him, who fills all and in all. The church belongs to Christ our Lord. And when we see that in the New Testament, because never are the the leaders of the local church referred to to as the head of the church. You'll never see that. And neither is the church seen as a democratic organization where the members are free to vote their own mind on issues. In fact, the key question in the church government is never what's on the mind of the members, but always what's on the mind of Christ. Because again, the church is a living organism with Jesus Christ as the living head. So the church was not designed to be a corporation with the pastor and the elders and, 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 the, and the, the deacons as the shareholders and the congregation also as shareholders. No, the main function of the church government is to allow Christ to exercise His headship over His church through organized godly leadership. But we ask the question then, who is qualified to be the church's godly leadership? Well, the answer for that question, the best place we can go is found in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy in chapter 3. 
And so if you have God's Word with you this morning, I invite you to grab it and turn with me to 1 Timothy in chapter 3. We looked at the four pillars of the church, and so if a church is to become a pillar in support of the truth of God, it must have leadership that believes in the truth, that our Lord Jesus is the head, and that we are under Him, and that He is the one that must guide and move the church in the right direction. And so if you're there, 1 Timothy chapter 3, let's read verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, starting at verse 1. And again, I'm reading out of the Legacy Standard Bible. And God's holy word reads, It is a trustworthy saying, If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he care of the church of God? And if and not a new, covenant, new convert, so that he will not be become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. And there is the reading of God's holy word. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Your Word. <laughs> and Father, as we now come to Your Word, we, we need the help of the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Truth, to be our main teacher today. As, as we look at how You have organized Your church, we pray that You open our eyes to the wonderful truths. Equip us, Lord. Father, help us be a church like You've designed. And Father... <laughs> Forgive me my shortcomings and preach a better message than I have prepared. And we pray that the truth in Your Word would transform our hearts. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So before we look at 1 Timothy this morning, a little, a little background. In the book of Acts, it shows us much about the history of the church and the birth of the church. And Acts ends around the year A.D. 60 with Paul being in Rome, and he's under house arrest. And then later, Paul was released and traveled around the Roman providence of Macedonia, and, and that included Ephesus. We know this because Paul was an apostle. And remember, the word apostle means one who is sent out. A sent out one for a specific purpose. And how can we be so sure that this is what the word apostle means? And we know this because of Matthew chapter 10 and verses 1-8. through this is where we see the Lord Jesus sent out the original twelve, the original apostles, to preach the gospel and to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And what we need to understand is that it was Jesus Himself who established the office of apostle, even selected the name apostle. In Matthew 10, 1 through 8, it tells us, And summoning his twelve disciples, Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of those twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Adolphus, and Thaddeus, 
Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. This is where the name Apostle comes from. Our Lord Jesus sent out these twelve men. They're, they're sent out ones. And here's what our Lord sent them out to do. Matthew chapter 10, 5-8. through eight. He said, Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preaching, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers. Cast out demons. Freely you receive. Freely give. These are sent out ones by our Lord Jesus Himself to go out and proclaim the good news. And how the lost sheep of Israel would know that these were His sent out ones is that these men were His apostles. And He gave them the gift to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopards, and cast out demons. So just like our Lord Jesus, these miracles were to prove to the nation of Israel that He was their Messiah, that He was God in human flesh. And so then our Lord Jesus gave these gifts to His apostles. And because all twelve of these men were eyewitnesses of Christ's work on earth and His resurrection, they were then given the title Apostle. Minus Judas, it was through their Spirit-empowered witnesses that the church began. And it's their words and writings that helped provide the New Testament books which we have today. These were the men that were the foundation of the church would be helped along through. And so now they weren't only disciples, but now they're apostles. They're sent out ones with a commission. And after His return to heaven, our Lord Jesus commissioned these men to build His church with Himself being the head, the cornerstone. So our Lord Jesus is the foundation, but the apostles helped lay it through their work. And we know that Paul is also a sent one because he was ordained as an apostle by our Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Paul, being an apostle, he's a sent out one. He moved around preaching the Gospel and setting up churches. And so here in 1 Timothy, while he's traveling, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to pastor the church that was started there. Timothy had spent many years with Paul. He was like a spiritual son to Paul. And 1 Timothy was written somewhere around the AD 63. And Paul wrote it to guide Timothy to correct some problems in Ephesus. We know this because 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, Timothy was needed there. 1 Timothy 1.3, Paul says to Timothy, As I exhort you when going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may, you may condemn certain ones not to teach a different doctrine. So in the churches, churches at Ephesus, some guys had risen to the level of pastor or teacher, but they were teaching something other than true doctrine. And our Lord God is a God of order. So he has an order to his church. So Paul writes this letter to Timothy to give him wisdom and the ammunition he needs to attack this issue head on. And Paul wants Timothy to show the elders here at Ephesus just what are the divine qualifications that the church needs to have. And because of this, this is God's church and there needs to be a high standard. So back when the church was beginning, the apostles and the prophets, they would they would come into an area, they would preach the gospel, and, and, and many repented because, because they heard the word and they, re, and they became believers, and then they would lay the foundation. And then in that area, a church would be set up. And there's a way our Lord wants His church set up, which is a church that's being led by a plurality of godly leaders. And there were two main offices set up in the local church to help shepherd the flock. So just what were these two biblical offices of church leadership. Well, we have an overseer or elder and a deacon. And today we'll look at the office of overseer or elder, and then next Sunday, Pastor Brandon will look at deacons. 
And so for a church to have Christ as its head, it must be led by a plurality of godly leaders. And here's Paul. He's going to give Timothy all the qualifications of this, godly, of this godliness. And if the church is to become a pillar and supporter of the truth of God, it's one that will have biblically organized leadership who is meeting the biblical qualifications for leadership. But just what are these biblical qualifications? What is the church to look for when, when looking for godly leaders and elders? Well, that's what we'll look at today in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 1 through 7. Paul will, will give us four principles to look for in a godly leader in the office of elder. So first, in verse 1, there's the pursuing of the office of elder. The pursuing of the office of elder. Second, in verses 2 and 3, there's the persona of the office of elder. The persona of the office of elder. Third, in verses 4 and 5, there's the preparedness of the office of elder. The preparedness of the office of elder. And then fourth, in verses 6 through 7, there's the posture of the office of elder. The posture of the office of elder. If a church is to become a pillar and supporter of the truth of God, it must have leadership that believes the right things and behaves in the right way and guides the church in the right direction. And Paul would use these four principles as he began his ministry missions, as he appointed elders in each of the new churches, and even though some of those churches were just a few weeks old. And here in 1 Timothy, Paul, Paul is giving Timothy these same principles what to look for in mature Christians and for them to become elders. And as, as we look at this today, we see the, again the four principles, the four Ps. The pursuing, the persona, preparedness, and posture of a godly man. These are the qualifications that God has designed for church leadership. But even though the title of today's message is God's Word to God's Men, Everything we're going to look at here today is applicable to all of us. So even if you'll never be an elder or serve in church leadership, everything that we'll look at today can be applied in your walk with Christ. We all need to be more Christ-like and what Paul will show us today will help us move in that direction. So let's jump into God's holy word. First, the pursuing of the office of elder. The pursuing of the office of elder. And here in verse 1, Paul has seven points for us to look at. Verse 1, It is a trustworthy saying, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. Notice Paul begins verse 1, that it is a noble saying. So point 1, he's telling us is that this is a trustworthy saying. It, it's true. This is an undeniable truth. So what is this undeniable truth? Point 2, if any man... So right off the bat, we see that this undeniably truth is limited to men. It's in the masculine form, so men are being referenced here. And in case there's any doubt, just before chapter 3 here, at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12-15, through 15, Paul goes through how women are to function in the church. And so now here in chapter 3, he's instructing the men. And so when it comes to the one who stands up to preach and teach in the church, it's not a role for a woman. When it comes to the matter of leadership, Paul says women are to be submissive. So women are not to preach and teach, but really, women have the harder role than the men because they are to be submissive. And that's not easy to do. And really, when we look at the different roles of men and women, the women might have the more important role. 
because a woman has her impact on society, not by being a leader in the church, but by being a godly influence in her home, by raising up her children in love to glorify God. And the man has the outward leadership, but the woman has an important inward influence on her children. If the Lord so blesses her with children. So the woman can set the course for them to be a witness and to, to, to submit and love the Lord, which will prayerfully stay with their children for the rest of their lives. And so this brings us to the third point, which is, it is a true saying that if a man aspires, aspires. Notice verse 1, we have aspires and desires, and they rhyme. But this word aspires is something you do outwardly. It has the meaning of to reach out after, to, to, to stretch far, to grasp for something. Aspiring is, is talking about an outward motion. But desire has a more inward meaning. It's something you feel inwardly. So the outward aspiring comes from the inward desiring. And so what is the man aspiring to? To the office of overseer. And so point number four is that this is an established office. The Greek word here, office, has has the meaning of intensifying an already existing idea. This office was something set up by our Lord. It, it wasn't just something Paul made up. And what's the office? Well, that's the fifth point, the office of overseer. But why does Paul use the word overseer here? In some translations, it's the word bishop. Well, really, an overseer or a bishop or elder are all the same thing. Paul uses the word overseer or bishop or elder when writing about church leadership interchangeably. He uses different wording because the gift of pastor or shepherd is someone that can be moved around, but elders, overseers, or bishops do not. Pastors are elders, but they moved around from place to place back then, like Titus or Timothy. They moved around from different churches as pastors until someone was established that could take over. And when Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, he's the pastor at Ephesus. But Timothy won't always be their pastor. And the word overseer means one who has been given authority or responsibility to govern or, or oversee a group, a state, or situation. So it's the same office, but just different sides to it. They all refer to the same office. Again, how can we be so sure? Well, they're all used of the same people. We find that in Acts 20.28, 20, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5. It's all the same Greek word. It's translated elder, bishop, pastor, or overseer. And all these words refer to the same office again, the leader of a local church. We also have a second office, the office of deacon, which we'll look at next week. But elders, overseers, bishops, pastors, they're all the same office, just different roles. The word pastor means shepherd, it's one who feeds. An overseer, an elder is one who leads. Same title, different roles. One feeds, one leads. So, this brings us to the sixth point, and the word good. The word good. If a man aspires to the office of overseer elder, he desires a good work. It's good. In the Greek, this, this good means a noble, excellent, honorable, high, of high quality. It, it's something of great value. And then verse 1 ends with the seventh point, which is the work. It's a noble work. And work means that it takes energy. It's it's, it's expanding energy. It's an effort. It's zeal. It's commitment. And the word here has the idea of it's not just a one-time task, but it's a, it's, a, it's a lifetime work. So the first principle of pursuing the office of elder 
That there's a deep desire from within the heart of a man who understands its importance. He understands that God is driving him to that. And then he aspires to reach out for it knowing that it's a good and noble work. And this is where church leadership has to start with. And now the second principle in verse 2. We see the persona of the office of elder. The persona of the office of elder. Or character of the office of elder. But even if a man has no desire to become an elder, again, verse 2 needs to be the persona and character for each one of us here today if we're a believer so that we can become more Christ-like. Because if we look at verse 2, this really is complete Christianity. Every man and woman who is born again should be moving in this direction. So verse 2. An overseer then must... Be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So here's the, here's the kind of person God wants to lead His people. And in verse 1, it shows us the man with the desire to be an elder. Now here in verse 2, we see how the church is to qualify the man with the desire or to affirm his qualifications. And no man will ever perfectly fit all of these lists of qualifications, but it doesn't mean that the standard can be thrown out as an impossibility because he must be someone who's continually ever developing his own life into a Christ-likeness. And here in verse 2, Paul is giving Timothy, again, these seven qualifications if a man aspires to overseer or elder in the church. And notice the order here. There's an order right off the bat. An elder must be above reproach. The first qualification, above reproach. What does it mean, above reproach? In the Greek, it's a compound word, which means cannot be held. So there's, there's something that nothing can be held. There, there can't be a charge against this person some, of some obvious or glaring sin. That there's no area of a man's life that can be held against him or charge brought against him. And again, this doesn't mean sinlessness or no one could be an elder. But there needs to be a blamelessness. A present state of blamelessness. That in every area of his life, whether at home or at work, in his personal life, that there's no area of his life that's worldly or fleshly, no evil habits, no worshiping worldly, fleshly idols. And the reason is that our walk with the Lord is, is not something that we can divide into sections. It's not something that we can just divide. That someone is faithful in, 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 one, in these areas, but in this one he's not as good. Because in any area of unfaithfulness, it's, it's going to bleed over to all areas of our life. So he must be above reproach. There's, there's no area of his life which there is an imbalance. It's important that this man be blameless. And this word reproach is translated in Job 1.8 as blameless and upright. Job 1.8 says, when, when Yahweh said to Satan, Have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Job would have been a great elder. So a good word to sum up above reproach is integrity. Integrity means a state of being whole and undivided. He's a complete package. In every area of his life, there's consistency. Many times we think we can play around with sin in one area of our life, and we feel that it won't affect the others. But that's not possible. There's no firewall protecting one area from another. It's going to bleed over. It's just like when you, <clears throat> when you wash clothes, you, you would separate the whites from the colors. Because if you wash whites and you just throw in one red shirt, what happens? 
They'd bleed all over the whites and they would come out pink instead of white. It's the same with our walk. If one area of our life is worldly or fleshly, it'll bleed over to all the areas of our walk. And whether we're an elder or not, or a man or woman, this needs to be our life as well, blameless and upright as we grow in our faith. This is, every, this is everyone's Christian walk. And so right off, the, right off the bat here, Paul is setting a high bar. An overseer then, the first qualification must be above reproach. Now the second qualification, the husband of one wife. An elder must have a singular devotion, which means there's a, a faithfulness here. There's a devotion to that woman. There's a, a faithfulness, a loyalty, mentally, emotionally, relationally, physically, all directed to their spouse. Again, Paul puts these qualifications in a certain order to show us how each one relates to the other. So if someone is above reproach, they must be a one-woman man or a one-man woman. As for the elders, Paul lists the second here because in particular, men can struggle with moral and sexual purity. And this is something that has happened many times over, over the last few years. We hear it over and over leader after leader in the church falling into sexual misconduct. And so Paul lists it second here to show how important it is to be totally devoted to a wife. Maintaining a singular devotion, affection, and sexual purity in both thought and deed. So he's, he's not a playboy. <laughs> he's not an adulterer or a flirt. He, he doesn't show romantic or sexual interest to other women. Marriage is supposed to be the picture of Jesus and His love for the church. And this love will carry over to all areas of our life because it's a sacrificial love, something we all need more of. And so this love will carry over to all areas of our life as we learn to put others first. Paul is not saying that a single man can't be an elder. He's not saying that. But if he's married, he is not to be a flirtatious flirtatious man, what they call a player. And if he's, if he's shown himself singularly, he's that he's a singularly devoted man to what the Lord has called him to be, then he's qualified. And again, Paul's not saying that a divorced man can't be an elder. There's no mention of divorce. What the original Greek says is a man of one woman. And the word divorce is not mentioned. And it's not because... And it's not because... When you look at what Paul's trying to get at here, his main point is when a man desires to be the leader in God's church, he must be devoted to one woman. And how does a man stay devoted to one woman? Well, it stems from being devoted to Jesus Christ. And sometimes, in some situations, it's not the man's fault for divorce. Maybe he wasn't a believer when he was divorced, when it happened. And so if he wasn't a believer and there was a divorce, and then he becomes a believer, and he's been married and faithful to his wife for many, many years, that man can still be considered. And Paul here is mainly speaking more about the moral character than he is the status. It's, it's the character of the man that he's getting at. Which brings us to the third qualification. Temperate. Temperate. And the word comes from being sober-minded. Being, it means wineless. Which is the idea of someone being free from the intoxicating effects of liquor or intoxicated with the world. So it has the meaning of having, having a complete clarity of mind, of being clear-headed so you can make good judgments. So sober-minded, temperate. It's, it's someone that's able to figure out with clarity the things that are of greatest value and importance. To be temperate means there's, 
There's nothing in your life that's out of balance. There's, there's, a, there's a self-control. Thomas Kempis said, the most severe conflict that any person can enter into is the conflict to subdue himself. I think we all struggle with self-control. It, it can be hard. But I also read this quote from D.H. Keel, and it's so true. It says, the beginning of self-mastery is to be mastered by Christ and to yield to His Lordship. And when temperate begins, it's for us to be mastered by our Lord Jesus Christ. This is where it all begins and ends. So to be temperate, there needs to be sound judgment. And this word temperate is only used three times in the entire New Testament. The second use is found in 1 Timothy 3.11. Up in 1 Timothy 3.11, Paul wrote, Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Temperate, which says a godly woman has moderation. She's, she's, she's temperate in the way she dresses, in the way she speaks. There's a dignity about her. And the third time this word temperate shows up is in Titus chapter 2. In Titus 2, verse 2, Paul talks to the older men. He says older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love and perseverance. The older we are, the more mature we should be. And Paul's talking about being in control of how we think, about not being squeezed into the mold of the world and then becoming so worldly-minded. So a man who leads the church is devoted in his love life to one woman and is self-controlled in his personal habits so that his mind is clear enough to order what's important in, his, in this world in a proper way. And by living like this, it will result in the next, the fourth qualification, which is sensible. Sensible. So because he's controlled by, by, by this inner order, that well-disciplined spirit, he's, he's, he's able to fulfill the duties and all the responsibilities of life. He has an orderly life. And we see the discipline of his heart and his mind in the discipline of his responsibility and his actions. And this is important because we're not to have a chaotic lifestyle, but an ordered lifestyle. The work of an elder in the church is, is, is the work of administration. It's the work of ordering others. It's, it's the work of overseeing. It's the work of putting things in their proper place. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, and now the fourth qualification, respectable. Respectable. So there needs to be a sense of dignity to the man who would lead God's church. And respectably, respectable. Respectable is the outward appearance of being temperate and sensible. In the Greek, in fact, it comes from the word cosmos, which means orderly, well-arranged, disciplined, honorable, and respectable. We use it to describe the universe, the cosmos, because it's so well-created. Respectable. Which leads to the sixth qualification. Hospitable. Hospitable, meaning someone who has a tender affection toward and is hospitable, hospitable to strangers. You know, during Paul's time, he's writing this, it was important that strangers feel welcome in the home of an elder because there were no nice hotels or motels like today that were affordable to many believers back then because most of them were poor. It was a real ministry to open your heart and your home to a family and give them a meal. And this is something every believer should have. Hospitable to hospitable to other believers and visitors in the church. to Make them feel welcome. And this is repeated in the book of Hebrews. 
In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2, Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. And that's true. Just ask Abraham and Sarah, right? Paul wants elders to understand that they're not so important, that they're above anyone, that they need to be approachable with an open heart. His life and home need to be open so that the true character of his life can be a witness to everyone who comes there. And now the seventh qualification in verse 2. Able to teach. Able to teach. And this might seem odd that able to teach comes right in the middle of all these character qualifications. But the reason Paul places it here as the seventh is teaching effectively rests on the character of the teacher. So a teacher of truths in God's Word is only able to teach effectively if he lives up to what he's teaching. This able to teach has the idea of learning and teaching in the sense of educating and training in a formal or informal setting. But it's not so much as possessing vast knowledge, but someone who can communicate effectively whatever that knowledge and understanding they might have. So being able to teach means the elder has been taught and he understands the truth from God's Word, and then he's able to communicate that truth to others. Which means that a man is teachable and that he's able to teach others. But this doesn't mean that an elder has to have the gift of teaching in a classroom kind of setting. No, it means an elder needs to be able to study and understand God's Word enough to be able to meet with someone, maybe one-on-one, and share that knowledge. So it doesn't have to be in a classroom. And now in verse 3, Paul gives us, he'll give us five more qualifications. And in verse 2, all the qualifications were positive ones, but now here in verse 3, notice that three of the five are negative traits. These are, these are things not to have. So let us look at verse 3. Is not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money. So again, in verse 2, Paul states an elder should be. And now here in verses three, verse 3, it's mostly what an elder should not be. And let's look at these five qualifications here in verse 3. So an overseer must be not addicted to wine. And this word refers to a man whose habit it is to continually drink wine. So it's not only drinking wine, but it's the man who continually guzzles wine. There's nothing wrong with drinking a little wine, but there must be temperate use of wine. So Paul isn't saying that someone who takes a little wine now and then is disqualified from being an elder. But how can we tell if he's temperate with wine or not? Well, this would be a man that's addicted to wine, meaning he's always drinking. Remember, Paul is showing us the kind of godly man needed to lead God's church. And so if someone is always looking for a drink or is addicted to drink, then he's not in control of himself. Something else is in control of him. And also if a man is addicted to wine, it leads to the, to the negative trait found here in verse 3, the next one. An elder must not be pugnacious. Pugnacious means violent, quarrelsome, argument, argumentative, ar- aggressive. And people who drink, usually the outcome is violence. It's being controlled by something other than the Holy Spirit. But even if, even if a man doesn't drink, he must not be pugnacious. And so Paul is saying that an elder, that he can't be quick-tempered. He must be someone who doesn't resort to physical violence or intimidation. Church leadership needs a man who can deal with things with a cool head and gentleness who doesn't fight. And it's not just physical violence, but it also implies verbal violence. And so his tongue 
should not be a lashing tongue, one that, one that brings dissension. You know, it's not just with the fists that we can hurt someone, but it's with our mouth, with our tongue as well. We know that from the book of James. The tongue can be such a violent instrument. And so the man who leads the church is not to deal with difficulty through physical violence or, or verbal cuts. And now we come to a positive trait again. And it's in the direct contrast to the pugnacious. And it's peaceable. Peaceable. Peaceable means to be considerate, and forbearing, gracious, and gentle. It's a person who can easily forgive human failure and, and doesn't hold grudges. An elder is not, is not a contentious man, but he's peaceable. He's peaceable. And then lastly, in verse 3, we have another negative trait, and it's the free from the love of money. There's nothing that will derail a church more than the love of money. Because there's a greed in the human heart, and it causes people to do different, say and do different things than they ordinarily would do. They just want to, they'll do anything just to keep the money flowing. We have to ask the question, is your treasure God or money? Because where one's treasure is, that is where his heart is. The true measure of a man is not found in his bank account. It's found in his likeness to Jesus Christ. The church is to become a pillar and supporter of God's truth. It needs leaders and people who have sound biblical perspective of money. God loves a cheerful giver, and we know that finances can be worrisome, but we trust the Lord to give the church what they need and can handle. If any man loves money, that's first in his heart. It's like drinking. It's controlled by something other than the Holy Spirit. And that's why they can't have the love of money. We need to be free of that so that we can depend on our Lord more. Again, Paul's giving Timothy four principles for spotting godly men in the church. First principle was he's to, there's the pursuing of the office of elder. There's the desire. The second principle was the persona of the office of elder. That's the character. And now the third principle in verses 4 and 5, the preparedness of the office of elder. The preparedness of the office of elder. So this is the training ground in verses 4 and 5. Look at verse 4. Leading his own household well and having his children in submission with all dignity. In verse 5, but if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? What Paul's getting at here is the family becomes the proving ground for leadership skills and the preparedness of, for leadership. Because no man can be a leader in God's church unless he's a leader in his own home. And so verse 4, for those keeping score, we have the 12th qualification of a man who seeks the office of elder, which is leading his own household well, or manage his own household well. Here's the training ground for becoming an elder. But what really does it mean this leading or managing, what is Paul getting at? Well, the word here for leading means to, to have authority over to, or to stand before. And so he's responsible for administrating and running of his household. And don't miss the last word here, this leading and managing his household well. Don't miss the word well. So why does Paul add the word well at the end? This word well, it has a deep meaning in the Greek. And that is that there's a richness to this leading. It really means appealingly good and beautiful. And so it's appealingly good so that it's appealing to the eye, that it's lovely to look at. Which means that when we look at this man's household, we see with our own eyes that he's leading his household well. That doesn't mean that his kids are perfect. They're not like the, the Von Trapp family on the sound of music. 
but he's leading well. And so it's, it's something that other men want to copy to have, to have their family be like. Because the reason it's appealing is because we want to copy it. It's because of the 13th quality here in verse 4. It's by having his children in submission with all dignity. And so if you want to know if someone is leading their home well, you look at his children. Again, we know that children will be children. So it's, isn't this really impossible? How can, how can any kids be in submission with all dignity? What does it even mean that the children are in submission with all dignity? Well, we know that children will be children. They'll always act like children. But there needs to be a visible effort from the man leading his kids to understand what it is to be respectful, submissive, and obedient. They might not always act this way, but they've been taught and understand why and how to act. And this word submission, it's it's a sort of a military term, which means to line up in rank under those who are over them in authority. Our submission to the Lord begins at childhood as we submit to our parents. And remember, Paul has just given Timothy this list of qualifications. And he's listed these already. Temperate, sensible, respectable, able to teach, peaceable. All of these traits begin in the home. Because Paul isn't saying that this man must be a dictator ruling over his home with an iron fist. No, he's to show a Christ-likeness as he leads his family well. With a loving heart, with a heart so full of love that his children will want to obey rather than disobey. And so if we wanted to sum up the whole process of leadership in the home, we could use these three words. Authority, wisdom, and love. But even if a man has all the qualifications, but his kids are out of control and he does not lead his house well, does that mean he's disqualified from church leadership? Yes, it does. How can we be so sure of that? Well, again, look at verse 5. But if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Again, Paul is showing us that the home is the proving ground. It's where a man's leadership capability is prepared and nurtured. And this qualifies or disqualifies him from spiritual leadership. Paul says the same thing in Titus. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul says, Namely, if any man is beyond reproach, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, who are not accused of dissipation or rebellious. And he says in Titus, having faithful children. That's believing children. So children that are living in the home, they need to have heard the Gospel, they need to understand the Gospel, and they need to believe the Gospel. However, there can be times where children will then grow up confessing the faith and then later in life walk away from that faith. And of course, that's out of his hands. But what Paul is talking about here is for a man to lead well, he must share the Gospel with his family and teach about our wonderful Savior and continue sharing until they all understand. No one can force someone to believe, but there needs to be a teaching and sharing the truth that he believes. The children are to see in him the love and devotion to Christ which is passed on to them and with prayer and faith trust the Lord to do the rest. But what if a man has no children? Is he disqualified then? Well, we know that there are couples that can have children, and that's by God's design, so we know that the answer is no. That's not a disqualification. So what Paul, again, is getting at here is that if a man's home life is not in order, 
we don't then promote him and give him the responsibilities to be a leader in the church, to take care of the family of God if he can't take care of his own family. Paul is walking us through these qualifications for a man for becoming an elder, and an elder must be a godly husband and father. And Paul's not talking about perfection, but it does mean that he's, he's, he's walking the walk of being faithful to God. So if the church, if God's church is to become a pillar and supporter of His truth, it needs men of God who are good managers in their homes. Again, this is what Paul is giving Timothy, these four principles for overseers or elders in God's church. And the first was the pursuing of the office of elder. The second, persona. The third, the preparation. And now the fourth principle is the posture of the office of elder. Verses 6 and 7. The posture of the office of elder. It's, it's how a man carries himself. His maturity. And all the traits Paul's listed up to now are inside traits. Traits that the Holy Spirit gives us to be more like Christ. And so here, Paul will address the outside traits. The result of the Holy Spirit should result in actions that match the inside traits. What's inside a man should be on the outside of a man. Verse 6, Paul writes, And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So this is a matter of maturity. Not a new convert. This Greek word here, new convert, means newly planted. It's the word newly planted. It's used only here in the New Testament. It's, it's used outside the New Testament to talk about planting trees, the actual planting of a tree in the ground. But why does Paul include this? Why can't a newly converted man become an elder? Well, just like a tree that's newly planted, it takes time for the roots to grow and spread out and anchor that tree. It's the same when we become believers. When we're being sanctified. We need time to mature. And so it makes sense that a new believer would not be ready to serve as a leader. And Paul says the main problem will most likely happen if a new believer is raised to the level of the church leadership. And that's the rest of verse 6 when he says, so that he will not become conceited. And what's it when someone is conceited? They're prideful. Prideful. And this word conceited means puffed up or, or clouded with smoke. And so it, it doesn't mean that he's not qualified. In fact, he may be qualified. But if he's a new Christian, if he's a relatively new in the faith, the temptation will be too great for him. He'll look around and see all these other older men of faith that weren't chosen to lead. And it goes to his head. And before he knows it, he's conceited. He's prideful. And really, pride is the root of all sin. It's like the rim that all the other sins spoke off. And when we think about pride, who is it in God's Word that fell because of pride? Pride was the first sin recorded in the Bible. And the devil, Satan, after he got puffed up, he wanted to be like God instead of serving God. And then he rebelled. And for a man to be a leader in the church, he needs to be submissive and and a humble servant like our Lord Jesus was. In fact, our Lord Jesus is the model for humility. Being humble is the only way that God can use anyone. If any man desires leadership in God's church, he needs to be humble like our Lord Jesus because pride will bring down any leader. And we look at the differences between the two in God's Word. Pride and humility. We can see that pride led Satan to say, he said, I will ascend unto heaven. 
But humility led Jesus to say, I will descend from heaven. Pride led Satan to say, I will exalt my throne. Humility led Jesus to say, I will leave my throne. Pride led Satan to say, I will sit on the mount. Humility led Jesus to say, I will kneel and wash feet. Pride led Satan to say, I will ascend above the clouds. Humility led Jesus to say, I will descend below the clouds. Pride led Satan to say, I will be like the Most High. And humility led Jesus to say, I will become a man. The true measure of a man or woman is their likeness to Christ. So we need more humility, not more pride. Paul is warning us that when a man worships and serves himself, he plays right into the hands of the devil. So an elder can't be a new convert. And really what Paul is doing here is he's trying to protect him from this pride. That's why Paul says in verse 6 here, so that he won't fall into condemnation of the devil. And this word Paul uses here, condemnation, it's a word used in a legal judgment or decision. It's a, it's a judgment that's then passed on to someone. It means a pronouncement of a judgment. And so if a new believer is promoted to elder, Satan will be waiting, and he'll do everything he can to pull the young believer into becoming puffed up and prideful. It's really protecting the new believer from pride. And just like Satan, when he tried to be lifted up, God threw him down. And so will a prideful leader. God will not use him in the way that he would if he was humble. We see that in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 12. Matthew 23 and 12, our Lord Jesus said this, And whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. We want to be more like Christ. And God's Word tells us over and over that we lower ourselves, and God lives us up. But when we raise ourselves, God puts us down. We see that in James chapter 4 and verse 6. James 4, 6, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So Paul says, don't, conform, don't confirm a new Christian. If you do, and he's lifted up, he becomes proud, and then he falls into the same condemnation that the devil fell into. And this is why if the church is to become a pillar and supporter of truth, it needs seasoned and mature believers leading the way. And then in verse 7, Paul says, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Second time, Paul mentions the devil here. And so he, the man must have a good reputation. And reputation is a testimony. So it's a tested reputation. So not only good inwardly, but good outwardly too. And Paul writes a lot about this. He wrote it in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15. In Philippians 2, 14 and 15, Paul said, Do not do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So that you will be blameless and innocent children without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So when we worship more than we whine, when we proclaim instead of complaining, we'll stand out in a good way. As believers, we're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And so outside the church, this is what this man's reputation in the community is like. When Paul says outside the church, it means non-believers. It means those without faith. H.A. Ironside said, men who are leaders are to be of such character that even the people of the world can look at them and see in them what Christians ought to be. A man chosen to be an elder or a man chosen to be a pastor in the church must have a reputation for righteousness, 
for moral character, for love and kindness, generosity, goodness, even among the community that he's known in. There must be a good reputation with those outside the church. Why does Paul feel that's so important? Well, the rest of verse 7 says, so that he will not fall into reproach. Because how can you raise a man to leadership and expect him to impact his community if the community has no respect for his character? If a man can't reach people who have no respect for him, reproach reproach means disgrace. And how does this happen? How does he fall into reproach? Well, the last part of verse 7, and the snare of the devil. Again, this is the second time Paul's warning us about the devil disrupting God's church. And here the devil is using a snare. And what's a snare? Well, a snare is an unexpected, sudden, hidden trap. It's used to catch birds or animals. The Bible tells us that the devil goes around as a roaring lion, the hunter of souls, seeking someone he can devour. And he really loves to trap and destroy the credibility and integrity of the leaders in God's church. The devil's looking for any opportunity to disgrace a Christian. That's why we must be so cautious so we don't fall into Satan's trap. And what is his snare for leadership for men? Well, wealth, women, and fame. And that's why Paul begins his qualifications back in verse 2 with above reproach. There's no one who can bring a charge against this man because he's, he's walking closely with the Lord. A leader must be someone who has achieved and maintained a good reputation before non-believers. Reputation. Proverbs 22, verse 1. Proverbs 22, 1 says, A good name is to be chosen over great wealth. Favor is better than silver or gold. A good name is not easily earned, but, a, but once a good name is earned, it can be easily lost. If a church is to become a pillar and supporter of God's truth, It needs to have elders who have a good reputation with those outside the church. So the four pillars, the four four principles that that Paul was giving Timothy here. Four principles for a leader, an overseer and pastor. The pursuing of the office, the persona of the office, the preparation for the office, the posture of the office. And so as we conclude this morning, as as we wrap this up, again, next Sunday we'll we'll come to the end of this series on God's abundant harvest and the four pillars of the church. And the reason we we did this series was as we move into the coming years, it will get harder and harder to go against the current, the pull of churches wanting to be more like the world. So many churches are looking for the world's approval that they're becoming more like the world and less like the truth. But we believe here at GBC that the church does not change with the times. In fact, in God's Word, the church has a path all laid out for it, and it will not change with the times. And this is, this is where we get our philosophy of ministry from. And we ask the question, who's in charge of the church? And the answer is our Lord Jesus Christ. It's His church. He bought and paid for it with His blood. He's the head, and we're His body. And our Lord makes use of His of his headship through the offices of elders or overseers and pastors and also deacons. He utilizes spiritually mature, gifted men called elders, some pastors, teachers, and administrators. He uses these men to guard and guide his flock, to be equipped and to grow spiritually. And Paul just walked us through the kind of maturity God wants. If any man who would desire church leadership, 
And even if there's, if there's no elder will ever match these, perfect, these qualifications perfectly, this is the direction God wants everyone, and not just elders, to be moving into. And so again, everyone, every one of these we looked at today, they can be used in our own personal walk with God. Whether you'll be an elder or deacon in the church or not, or whether you're a man or woman here this morning, God wants every believer to develop into spiritual maturity. For every believer to be more like His Son, Jesus Christ. To be more Christ-like in our family life, in our relationships. And so Paul isn't telling us that if we're, that if we're not going to be in church leadership, that if we're not going to be, you have no desire, that you can just slough off or just coast in your walk with the Lord. Really, and all an elder is to do is to model Christ-likeness. Model true spirituality. So yes, these qualities must be true of an elder, but if you're born again, it must be true in your life here today. So again, what we looked at today is really complete Christianity. That our Christian walk is an, is an inside-outside operation. We can't just look good on the outside. It's not just a Sunday morning look. No, you... Who you are on Sunday morning needs to be who you are on Monday morning as well. The 24 hours, 7 days a week, 365 a year, living and walking with Christ. Our inside needs to match the outside in our words and our actions. This is, this is God's Word and this is God's standard. And it does seem impossible to live like this. And for an unbeliever it is. But the great thing about this is God's grace. When we become born again, his Spirit comes and lives inside us. And also, He gives us His church, His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ as the head. And so we can now take the steps that move us forward in our Christ-likeness. If any church is to become what God wants it to become, it must have leadership that's biblical and spiritual. And if any believer is to become what God wants them to become, we must become more like Christ. And every beat of our heart is to live for and glorify Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You again for Your Word because it does pierce our heart with truth. And Lord, we do pray that GBC will be and remain a pillar in support of Your truths. Father, give us the leadership. Give us leadership. The wisdom to follow Your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ as He is the head of the church. And help us all here today as we continue to grow in our spiritual maturity to be more like Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we know that, that these qualifications sound impossible, but nothing is impossible without You. Your Spirit makes it possible. And we do pray that each one of us here today, Lord, will grow and continue to move in that direction. And we pray this in all Your name. Amen.